The practice of being seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. This is a conversation with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships, and relationships shape stories. This is Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. And this is Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for healers. And this is The Practice of Being Seen. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. In this conversation with Maya, we talk about her recent post in the Practice of Being Seen contributors blog. As part of their membership benefits, members of our virtual community for therapists can submit articles for review. After an extensive co-creative editing process, we publish posts that therapists probably would never put on their own professional sites. Today we have Maya Benatar with us. Maya is a music therapist and psychotherapist in New York City. She helps overwhelmed and anxious women learn to be gentler with themselves, slow down meaningfully, and connect deeply with their creativity and power. Maya's passionate about music, mindfulness, and messy creativity as ways to show up fully in life. She also provides supervision and consultation to therapists who are ready to infuse their clinical work with creativity and play. Maya, we're so happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Thank you. You know, we wanted to dive in with you because you've recently written a post for the Practice of Being Seen blog, for our contributors blog, um, called Finding the New Normal in Our Post-Election World. And we wanted to talk a bit about that post and have you read it for us, but also dive into the process of writing that post and putting it out. Because it's one of those posts that you probably wouldn't have put on your own blog. Right. But on our platform, it was something different. Absolutely. Would you like me to start with reading it? That would be excellent. Okay. Yeah, I think it would ground us really nicely. Okay. Yeah. So this piece is called Finding the New Normal in Our Post-Election World. This election rattled me more than I'd like to admit, but I got up the next day and went to work because what else was there to do? Since November, I have felt it in waves, in small moments, in seismic shifts. I've paid close attention to others' reactions too. It only makes sense that the impact of this inauguration will touch us all in a myriad of deeply personal ways. Ultimately, I can only speak for myself and my growing sense that the shifting political and social tides influence the way I see myself and the ways I wish to be seen. To be clear, the daily realities of my life haven't really changed all that much over the last few months, and for that I am grateful. But all the same, something has shifted. Something deep in my bones, in my body, in my awareness, says that this is different. I'm midway through a year-long postgraduate training in trauma and the creative arts, and it's helping me understand my own experiences in a new way. I know that I hold trauma memories in my bones, in my body, in my history, and in the ancestral stories of those who came before me. I was teased a lot as a child. I was different. I was an exotic face, and that was hard. I had a funny name, a hairy upper lip, a dad with an accent. For years, I just wanted to be like everyone else, have a name people could pronounce, a face that didn't stand out, a heritage that was simple. I just wanted to fit in. Aspects of those experiences have been coming up for me since the election. I don't consider myself traumatized and have never considered myself a trauma survivor, but at the core of my life experience is an experience of being an outsider, of being unique, of being different in some way, and that leaves an imprint. As a child and as a teenager, I did what I could to downplay my uniqueness. I would often call my father dad instead of papa around my friends. To his credit, he never asked why. 
When I could, I avoided explaining about my Holocaust survivor grandfather, my triple citizenships, and the fact that I was born here, then lived there for a bit, and then came back here. But as I got older, I grew into myself. I grew to love my exotic name, my dark eyes, my unique look. And maybe there's a part of me that really loves that. I got so used to being the only Jew, the only one with a parent not U.S. born. Over the years, diversity became the new normal. I easily shifted from being one of a few to being one of many. I can't remember the last time I heard the name Maya called on the street and it was actually for me. But now something has shifted. The diversity that I and so many other New Yorkers grew accustomed to seems to have a different texture. Now I feel that shift and I know that I want to be seen and I wonder what that means. The trauma that my grandfather endured resonates in my bones. The echoes of never again echo in my head. I know I am privileged and can hide my differentness to a fairly large extent. But would continuing to hide really make sense for my work, for the world, for me? Seeing and being seen are two different things, equally hard, equally raw. I hold one in each hand and tentatively step forward. I do not know what to do, which always scares me. But I know deeply that to do nothing would be wrong. So I allow myself to feel scared when sirens rush past and to notice my body, to make eye contact with strangers on a New York City street and smile. Do these actions seem too small, too inconsequential when I'm trying to find ways to respond to post-election America and how the diverse society I value seems to be eroding? To let myself be more present and less removed from everyday interactions is actually quite powerful. I can let myself be seen now. I must let myself be seen now. Right now, my response to our changing society is to make deep and intimate connection with myself and others. Tomorrow, it will mean something else, but right now, it's enough to see and be seen. Hmm. Thank you, Maya. Hearing you read it out loud just makes it even more resonant. And knowing that you first wrote that in November. Yes. We published it right around Inauguration Day. And it seems even truer in so many ways as we record this in mid-March, at least from the reader's perspective. How about you? It feels, it's so interesting that you say that. It feels even truer for me too. Mm. And I originally wrote this um, about a week and a half after the election, when I, I could sense that there was a lot in me and definitely a lot around me, and that I just needed to get it out. And I, the rough draft was written in about 20 minutes. It was just, mm-hmm. it was just one of those, like, I have 20 minutes before my next client, and I have to let this out. Um, so it was literally like a brain dump into a Word document. And I wasn't going to do anything with it until the encouragement from you guys. So Mm. it's been quite a process. I'm wondering if you can dive into that process a little bit. (laughs) I, so I had written it in, in, uh, I guess mid to late November and I had posted it in the practice of being seen therapist group because I had wanted it. It's a private Facebook group and I had just wanted it to be seen. It, It felt, it felt very important for me and I hadn't, I hadn't been a member of the group very long, but I was kind of playing around with like, how, how am I going to show up in this space, um, in this virtual space with a lot of people that I don't know. And so I posted it and it just felt good just to share it. And then I think it was Rebecca who said, who suggested that it could be, you know, a contribution for the blog, um, which I had honestly never thought about. Yeah. It was just such a powerful read and it touched so many of us so deeply. Thank you. And I remember Rebecca having to pull my attention to it because I think I had gone into like, I can't deal with the internet right now right. in that <laughs> mid-November right. malaise. Remember that stage? The oh, deep yeah. filter. Oh, yeah. The deep filtering. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it was one of those moments where it was worth 
it was worth coming back to the internet because it was one of those connection points. It was mm. one of those places where you could once again feel your own humanity in Maya's words. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And just from the, from the writer's perspective of looking at, you know, I, I, we have the, the joy of Google docs, which is how we do our editing process. Um, you know, I'm able to look back at the very first piece you wrote and there were paragraphs that flowed from you to us full scale. Like knowing that I adore that paragraph you wrote about calling your father dad instead of papa mm -hmm. and the triple citizenship, the fact that I was born here, then lived there for a bit and came back here. Like those came through and I love that, you know, if pretty much full scale, they came into the final draft because we did some changes, right. but they were more about adjusting, um, I guess adjusting the lens is what I want to say. Right. I remember we spent, you know, quite a bit of time going back and forth about adjusting the lens, but I guess I guess what I took away from the the editing process is that these these feelings which I've had, you know, for most of my life and have been aware of for for a long time at their core are are authentic and don't need to be shaped too much if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I mean cuz that is that that is my real honest experience that I have such visceral memories of like knowing that my friends were around and and mindfully like switching what I would call my father mm -hmm. um you know like all of that is just so held within me even many many years later well they're your core stories yeah and they become in and get told at a different time and get a different sense of meaning and resonance depending on the context right i love that phrase core stories that's yeah that's exactly what they are yeah yeah and you could tell them to you know think about it. you could tell the story to of of being an exotic face and having a hairy upper lip and a dad with an accent to a child who's trying to fit into a new school right and it would be every bit as important to them in a different context. Because othering is such a human experience. We all have been on both sides of it, where we have fit in and on the side where we have felt that we don't fit in. Right, exactly. Exactly. Something about writing this piece and having it, you know, having it live much beyond the Word doc on my computer that I probably was never going to look at again um, <laughs> has, has really resonated so deeply for me. And I think it important to share that as I was just reading it just now out loud, that I was almost brought to tears. Mm. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about that, this piece of the process? You know, we recently had Eva Tenuto from TMI Project on, and she talked a lot about the performance aspect and the publishing aspect as a way of kind of resetting our, our own memory points, like especially when there's been a traumatic experience that it's the act of publishing, the act of performing that changes the pathway. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, if there's something of that that's resonating for you in this experience and having published it and reading it now. I think what's coming up for me is that the publishing I've had a while to kind of to, to be with um, and it was interesting, the, the process in which I shared it with people. So, you know, it was, it's been published for almost two months. And at first I didn't, I was very hesitant to share it, you know, and you were, whoever said it at the beginning of this wasn't something that I would necessarily put on my own blog was, was right on. Um, yeah. you know, I've, I've, had this ongoing dance as a lot of therapists do of what do I share? When do I share it? And it's very diff different to share in session with a client. And I've shared some of these details in sessions with particular clients as it's felt, you know, appropriate and, and, and needed for the connection, but I've certainly never shared them on such a broad open space. Um, so I noticed even it was a process for me of how am I going to share this with my own community, with my own, you know, contacts and connections. And I had to titrate it a little bit. Um, it took me, if I remember correctly, it took me a couple of days to, to put it out, you know, to, on my Facebook page and then to share it 
with friends and then with the training group that I'm in and then and it took me about a week possibly longer to share it with my own email list which was I remember seeing that post that was a felt like a celebratory move of like that was so (laughs) huge and ultimately and you know and and as a lot of therapists have been over the past months dancing around you know the personal and the political and what's resonating for us and for our clients is a delicate dance. And, but ultimately it wasn't. And I think I said this when I sent it out to my email list that it ultimately was really not about politics at all. Um, But, Mm. but about my own personal experience. And I think I said something along the lines in the email of that. I hope that it inspired people to tell their own stories because who doesn't have a story? Mm. Well, that's what therapy's about, right? It's about looking at our stories. Right. So it was, Mm. you know, to get back to your original question, it, it really, every time that I shared it and every time that I put it out there and, you know, posted it again on Facebook, it, it just settled deeper and deeper. Um, into my bones is something that I say a lot, but it's, it's something that really holds true for me. It's a phrase that I use a lot with clients, like, you know, taking something in all the way to your bones, right? Just letting it like seep in. Mm -hmm. And so every time that I shared it, it just went in deeper and deeper. But it's also kind of played around in the background over the past couple months. I don't, I don't know that I have better language to describe it than that. No, I think that's great language. Can you explain what you mean about absolutely? So, you know, I've, I've shared it. I've, I've sent it to people. I sent it to my family. Um, I shared it also on my personal, like Facebook profile, so friends, old college roommates. But also, that that deepening as I've done that has played around in the background of my own process, both both as a therapist and as a person. So, it's kind of it's kind of woken things that that need to be looked at. Or things that, you know, I've, I've not really looked at closely in a while and are kind of circling back around in a timely manner. Like, I don't believe there's any accident with these things. Right. Things mm-hmm. come back when we're ready to really look at them, when we're ready to hold them, um, essentially when they're ready to, to be seen, right? And so... When we're ready to see ourselves. Right, that too. <laughs> <laughs> that too. I wish you could see our faces right now. We have these like grins, mm. like like proud fairy godmothers oh. in the background. <laughs> <I think. laughs> and I mean... We're quelling. <laughs> That's perfect. I can totally see that. That's perfect. <laughs> and you know, it just... I mean, it, it, I, I've often said to people, especially when they're in that slog of doing that just writing, is... You know, you have to ask your writing process to give back to you. Mm, yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that that's something that it may be very small and just be saying, I did this. I wrote a beginning, middle, and end, and I can have that sense of personal satisfaction. Right. Okay, that's really important in and of itself. But in what you're describing, it's these ripples that can go forth by doing the writing, then doing that next step of what then turns you into a storyteller. Because you've, you've really stepped into that storyteller role of being in communion with your audience through your story and allowing it to come back to you. So you're building that relationship and it, it starts to kind of complete a circuit and it's giving to you because you are knowing that it's, as, as you said, playing around in the background of your life and it's enriching these relationships, professional and personal. And I'm so excited that this has happened for you in your own story and that I just hope other people hear this and understand that this is this is part of why we do this. This is why we tell stories. This is why we go through editing processes. This is why we put ourselves out there. And if I may just jump in, I think one of the, the integral pieces of what you just said, Marisa, was the telling of the story, the mm-hmm. sharing of the story. Because right. if this had stayed in a Word document on your computer, Maya, you right. know, it, it may have had a ripple effect, but would it have had this depth of the effect in oh, your bones? No. Yeah, definitely. It would not have. It, it would have stayed at the level of the, the catharsis of just writing it, which for me is always important and not to diminish that, but it would have stayed at that level. It wouldn't have gone, I don't think, really much deeper. And like I said, these are themes I've been playing around with for 
for many years. So I knew that they were there, but I've never really had, I guess, the capacity in, in some ways to really write into them in this way and then to share them. So yeah, it absolutely wouldn't have been the same if, if it had just lived in the Word doc on my computer. Right. What was it like for you reading it out loud today? It was really interesting. Um, so I'm just, I'm just thinking how I can, how I can best put it. I, so right before we, we got on the call to do the podcast, I was rushing around and, and sitting down and reading it really helped me to come back into my own body, which seems so simple but it's so hard sometimes and it's so personal and so then to read this really personal piece and to be super aware of my body in this moment was was very intimate in a way it was very that makes so much sense. yeah it was I was surprised and I used to do a lot of of acting and and certainly a lot of performing um and so there's a part of me that really likes that and so it tapped into that part of me, which now that I think of it is really my younger self. Since I, since I became a therapist 10 years ago, I, I really don't do as much performing as I used to. And so the part of me that did a lot of the performing, that did the musicals and the vocal competitions and, you know, went to Sarah Lawrence for like a theater intensive, that was my, that was my teenage self, actually. And so being able to perform was when I could be seen so interesting because as I think about this piece you know it almost feels like it's your teenage voice that wrote it yeah yeah it yes it really does and I I don't think that I was super aware of that and as a teenager I coped by by performing by I was also very shy which I don't think I mentioned in this piece I was painfully shy and that added a whole nother layer to the differentness um, and to the otherness, you know, being shy and, and then having all of those other kind of aspects of me, right? The exotic face, the, the dad with the accent, it just added a whole nother layer. So performing, I could, you know, I could sing in front of 200 people, but I couldn't ask the kid in front of me in math class to borrow a pencil, kind of shy. So yes, it does. But it's a really good point. It really does in many ways feel like it was my teenage self who wrote this. And those are the most evocative images that you, that you gave us. And I think that's what allows us to see that because you're, it's, it's, it's that Maya that's telling us about what it's like to have a dad with an accent. Right. And as, as, as important as it is to see the grown-up version of you walking through the streets of Manhattan, what we're going to remember is that little girl. Right. That young girl. And there's something that I'd love to fold into and this. And connecting to her. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because we all have that young girl. We all right. have that, that place in us. Absolutely. You know, it might be a different father. It might be a different accent. But, well, it's the, uni- the, spe- that's the universal found in the specific, yeah. right? Because Maya gave us her specific situation, because we're thinking about you in math class and asking for that pencil. Right. We're all now going to like <gasps> moments of high school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, you know, I'd l- I want to fold this in because, of course, in the editing process, there's pieces of the story that get pulled out. And it's not that they aren't beautiful and interesting. It's because we recognize we're starting here. We need to end there. How do we get our, get the reader to go on the most direct road? You had told a story in your first version about what it was like to stop wearing your Jewish star. Oh, right, right. And I think that, and that you said, I think was when you were interning. So it sounds like maybe that was more perhaps your, this in-between self between now and your between high school the professional self. self. Yeah, it's, it, it, I, think, I, think, I think when stories first come out of us, we often tell them in a progression, right? right? You give us the childhood, the, the, the single years and the married years, if that's where your life right. is. But is there anything you want to, you know, if that what that aspect of the story meant to you, if, if you, if how, just to fold that back into our conversation, is there anything around that? Yeah. That feels like it informed this in its final version. That's a really, that's a really good question. And it's funny until you said that I was thinking to myself, no, I don't, I don't remember a part of the story that didn't make it into the final draft. But um, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, I stopped wearing my Jewish star when I was doing 
an internship and it was in a psychiatric hospital. And so it mm. was between undergraduate and graduate school. So in music therapy, you do a month internship so you can sit for your board exam. So I was down in Maryland at a psych hospital doing an internship. And actually, now that I think about it, a lot of that, the st- I stopped wearing it because there were a lot of patients who had delusions around religion. Um, and it was just mm. making things really tricky. And But I also was cognizant at that point that if I didn't look so, you know, quote unquote different, that it probably wouldn't be as big of a deal. But I was in rural Maryland where, again, unusual name, unusual face, very young. I was 21, I believe. Um, so having to assert myself with you know, these guys who had long mental health histories, a lot of whom, you know, were forensically committed was really intense. And so there was a part of me that just needed to make it as simple as possible. Um, and also as safe as possible. There were actual, you know, safety concerns. And so, you know, we always needed to be cognizant of that. You know, we didn't share last names or anything like that, but, but on a greater scale, and I hope I'm kind of speaking into the part that you wanted me to, it just ties in, I think, to the overall, it's simpler if I just don't show this part of me theme. And that whole idea of it was simple and it was safe and it was a space, something that you could control. Right. And now if we pull that lens back Mm -hmm. and think about what's our world like right now, Mm. simple, safe, something we can control. (laughs) 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 Hmm. Right. What are your thoughts about that, Maya? <laughs> oh, I have so many thoughts. Um, but I think, I think the biggest thought that that popped into my mind is that that our world now is is really none of those. Right. You know, it is so complex and it is so unpredictable and it is so unsafe. And you know, and I I always want to be careful to, like I said in the piece. I feel like I need to put a disclaimer when I say things like that, because again, my own life has really not changed that much. And I'm cognizant of, of the lives of so many people that have changed dramatically over the past couple of months. So I always feel like I need to put a disclaimer on that. So I just want to be really, really honest about that. You know, if I wasn't going to say it out loud, the disclaimer would just stay in my head. So just sharing that bit. But yeah, I mean, it's, everything is just so complicated. You know, as I look back at this piece now, I wonder a little bit about about the title, right? And the way we chose to use the new normal Mm. in in the title. And I think that kind of came late in the process. Very, very late, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, sometimes titles are just given to you by the gods. And sometimes they're this long process of like, I don't know, we just need to pick something. And I think maybe this was somewhere in the middle of that, as we had three, you know, brilliant minds working together on it, to figure, you know, find the right, right words. But how does the new normal feel to you right now? I mean, I guess I mean that both in terms of the title of the piece, and and in the lived experience, in the lived experience, and whether or not that's the right name for this current experience. How does the new normal feel? Does the title still fit? Ah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that the new normal essentially is that there is no normal. And Mm. for many, for many people that is becoming normal, you know, this sense of like, what's going to happen next, you know, what's that instability is, is becoming the new normal. And so I, I remember that the piece was not, I mean, not the piece, the title rather was not my creation. I, I remember I had a lot of other ideas and I can't remember any of them right now, but um, it, when I forget who suggested it, but it just, it fit. And then it just, yeah, finding, finding the new normal, it's going to be an ongoing process so I think it fits on the piece. It's certainly, the title certainly isn't how I found my new normal because Lord knows I have not found it. But, right. but the, even it being, you know, an ING word, right? Finding rather than find the new normal. 
that it's this ongoing process. It's in the present, right? We're all still finding and looking. And I think this also speaks to both the, the experience of transformation and the, the transformation that our world is going through, the transformation that each of us as individuals is going through, the transformation that you are going through as a professional, as the author of this piece, um, but also the process that you hold as a professional, as a transformational professional, that finding the new normal is it's kind of like it's 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 always the thing. Right. Even when it's not this, when this isn't the precipitating factor that we're always seeking that new normal. There's always change. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it it resonates so much through my work as well that so many of the people that I work with are in transition of some kind and there's this deep urge to I have to get out of transition yesterday kind of thing. And as I say that, I, I notice actually that I'm clenching my fists. Like I have to get out of transition yesterday. Um, and there's such a tightness to that. And now I'm looking at my fists, but there, there's, such a, there's such a tightness to that. And I think that the transformation is in not having, in letting go of some of the tightness, right? I think it reminds me of, when I wrote seeing and being seen are two equal, two different things, equally hard, equally raw. I hold one in each hand and tentatively step forward. And that's actually an, an image and, and just something that I play around with a metaphor, if you will, a lot with clients that transition is about holding multiple things, but we, we generally stay with two. It's a little, we can actually, it's more tangible. And so you know, what are we holding in this transformation? Not what are we forcing with clenched fists, but what are we holding? And right now we're holding, you know, the instability and then I guess the potential for transformation. And it's that potential that is grounding. Yes. Just yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> I was, I was seeing your, your hands and I was seeing uh, your fists so much and that got me into thinking about the way the bo that bones plays into the piece. And I was mm. just having a brief moment of being an English major, really geeking out. I'll admit it because we are all the, all the interplays between the bones and the hands and the, and the imagery, yeah. but knowing that in this process of what we're doing right now is an awful lot like what you do in an English seminar uh, when you're analyzing mm. a short story mm -hmm. is that we're talking through this, recognizing parts of ourselves, stories from our own lives that is, are either occurring to us that we want to share, that we're weaving together. And this yeah. is one more element of how that practice of storytelling builds relationships, builds community. Because what happens when not only do you read a piece, but then you start to discuss it and share it, and it, the life of the piece just continues to grow and ripple forth. I mean, you're talking about this integrative process, which... I hear totally embedded in Maya's words. In Maya, you're talking about trauma and you're talking about your bones and you're talking about your experiences. Right. Most of the pieces that we publish on the Practice of Being Seen Contributors blog, we really work through with our authors. And Marisa does a really great job with headers and, and helping the piece flow mm -hmm. in different ways. And your piece was the first piece that has absolutely no headers. It's like a song that just, mm. it, it, it flows. There's a, there's a fluidity in your writing and in your storytelling. And when I see that, it makes me think of the professional Maya, the music therapist, and how everything kind of integrates together. That's, that's such a beautiful image. I didn't think of the piece as a song at all. I, at its core, I think a lot of my work as a music therapist is about flow. And so that's, that's really broad. It's a really broad way to describe it. But if you think about music, music can be so many things. It can be pressured and tight and small. And it can, it can flow. It can be lyrical and and gorgeous and just sweeping any adjective that I can think of at this moment. Um, and when w people experience trauma or transition or disruption 
of any kind, particularly early attachment disruption, they, that sense of flow is lost. And it's experienced in so many ways. It's the ripples that we were talking about before, you know, and so it ripples out into relationships, into work, into their own sense of themselves, into many things beyond music. But when we bring it, when I help a client bring it back to music, it's in music that often they can sense, wow, I wasn't breathing. Mm-hmm. Or, wow, there was no space for anything in, in that improvisation I just did. And by anything, I mean that sometimes I'll have a client who will just, I'll say, let's improvise, you know, touch base with how you're feeling right now. And the pace of what they play is so relentless that there's no space for me and there's no space really for anything else but this kind of tight, almost like a march. And so that's where we start, right? And it's not for me to critique, oh, this was wrong about that and you need more breath, but to bring them back to their lived experience of, of what did that feel like. And, and taking it into your bones is a phrase that I use a lot in my work as a therapist because we just don't think like that. A lot of us, it's the embodiment. I mean, and because music can be an embodied process and it can be a totally mindless process. And, and a lot of us tend to, and I, I do this myself sometimes, and for me it's always a, a signal of, hey, something's out of alignment, but music can be a way to check out. And sometimes we need that, and it's not for me to say that nobody ever needs to put on headphones and check out, but music is also a way to tune in and align so deeply with our inner selves in a way that's really intimate. And that might mean you know, improvising music, which is scary for a lot of people, and there's good reasons for that, is such an intimacy to improvising. And it might mean living in a song. And I use, I use a lot of songs with my clients. Um, as a singer, as a longtime singer, songs are really powerful for me. But often it's a beautiful place to start with a client when anything else feels too scary. When they come in and say, I want to do music therapy, but I don't want to play anything. And so that's fine. And so there's so much in a song. You know, this brings me to this one space, I think, in your piece that has sound in it. Mm -hmm. So I allow myself to feel scared when sirens rush past and to notice my body. And, Mm. you know... There's the embodiment. There's the embodiment and there's the music. Because whether... I, I think it was only a subconscious awareness. As I read this piece, I was always so aware of the noise of the New York City street. And I'm not even, I don't think you necessarily mm-hmm. underline that. It's just knowing you and what you would bring to this piece is right. you're finding in a way to be very aware, to make eye contact, to smile in the midst of this street symphony and all of its dissonance and find a harmony inside of it. Mm, that's so beautiful. And I just had a flash to um, George Gershwin and all of his all of his pieces that encapture like the city's energy. It just kind of flashed into my mind. But yes, I mean the sirens are a particular thing for me. Actually, on a on a personal level, there are certain sounds that I'm really sensitive to, um, which is odd as a music therapist, as a, a musician. But sirens are one of them. And I had a lot of uh, ear operations as a young child, and I think that's just residual from that. And so I'll often, noise doesn't really bother me that much, and I've gotten used to it in the city, but if a siren passes, I usually have to cover my ear. Hmm. And which is something that you often see like little kids doing because it's too much, you know? Um, And I'm no longer a little kid, and I still need to cover my ears, and I've just learned to embrace that. And, but I remember actually, I think it was like three or four days after, after the election, um, when I was about to cross a street and I was, I was not in Manhattan. I was in Queens, I believe. And, and it's, it was a lot quieter. And all of a sudden the siren rushed past so fast that I didn't have time to cover my ears. Mm. And, and, but I remember there was a part of me, and again, I think it's that child part that was like scared because I, I think I was holding something and I just 
the coordination just wasn't there in that moment to cover my ears. So I think that was scary on like a, a small visceral level. It feels also, really metaphorical too. Yeah, in many ways. <laughs> but also that I was scared of like what that could mean. And I had never really wondered about sirens before to a great extent. You know, they pass, you go, oh, I hope everything's okay. And then you go on with your life. Because mm-hmm. if we wonder about every siren, we'll never really do anything. But in that moment, I stood on the sidewalk and I was, I was frozen for a moment. And I actually, and I didn't write this in the piece either, there was a man standing next to me and, and he didn't speak much English, but he, we locked eyes and he, he just kind of, we just kind of acknowledged the, like, the fear in that moment. Wow. I don't know a better way to describe it than that. And then the light changed and I crossed the street and I kept going. Um, you shared humanity in that yeah. moment in such a profound way that in a way for some would read what happened at the election as a traumatic experience, certainly not everyone, but in those, in those moments afterward, you start paying attention and seeing the world in a different way. And you start seeing the people around you in a different way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry. I got off on a little bit of a tangent there. No, it was, it was a beautiful tangent. Okay. I think Wonderful. We, we love tangents. Yeah. I mean, it helps us get to know, I mean, cause you're not just the, the you who wrote, you know, a few hundred words, you're you, the writer, what parts right. of it were informing what you wrote in a first draft, even though it never made it on the page. Like, right. you know, in my work as a writing coach, so often I have people tell me their deepest secrets that they would never ever publish. Right, right. But unless I understand, if, if I don't understand that, I don't know how to help them hold what's being unsaid. Yes. And it's often what you're not saying, what you're wrapping in a metaphor, what you're dropping in with, you know, and then a bird came by. What does that bird really mean to you? If I can, if I'm going to be the best holder and container for someone's writing, I need to understand who that bird is. And if they need to fly back again, we can bring them in. Mm. And then that's the part of, again, the writing giving back to you. Right. You're able to see all the different reflections of yourself and read between your own lines. And I think another interesting and important piece in that is that not every detail of our story needs to be told. Does it need to be held by us? Does it need to be worked through? Sure. But does every detail need to be told in a piece in order to connect? I think, you know, that's part of the editing process and part of the difference between that very first draft or even what didn't make it into the first draft and what made it into the published piece that you read today. Right. Right. You know, and that's honoring the relationship that you have with the reader. And I mean, it's at the most basic level, like, I'm not going to waste your time with this ancillary detail but it's also saying like you and I dear reader have a moment together and this is what I'm going to use in this moment this is what I'd like you to feel and understand and I'm going to handpick these three details out of 37,000 <laughs> so that you see what I need you to see in this moment we can share something and then continue a greater narrative together and because we work a lot with a community of therapists and because Maya is a therapist you know, I think this idea of the therapist sharing of themselves is something that we hear a lot about. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot, of, a lot of people who write with us often are questioning. They're, they're sitting in. And Maya, I know this is an experience that you had a little bit as Absolutely. well. So I wonder if maybe, you know, th- there's a piece in here where we know as therapists that we do share some of ourselves um, in the room with our clients, we pick and choose when those moments are appropriate. And I think there's something that crosses over in a piece like this where maybe, you know, yeah, you, you talked about that, um, the staging of how you shared it with your community. Right. Um, some of that staging was about your own internal shifts. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? And so that, that's where I'm getting kind of curious because I, I wonder if some of our other listeners would also be curious about what that process was for you that made it go from, you know, this, this first draft to the edited piece, to the published piece, to a published piece that you weren't ready to share, to a published piece that a few weeks later you started mm-hmm. to share that you're able to come on a podcast <laughs> and read today. So you're asking what, what was the intern, what were the internal shifts? What, yeah, what were your internal shifts? Oh, there were just so many. <laughs> but I think if I had to 
put it into words that are somewhat coherent, the biggest internal shift was just a deepening sense of this is me and and that this is this is my story and like I wrote in the piece I spent a lot of time trying to kind of climb away from it in a sense and and I've just had this deepening awareness over the past couple months the past couple weeks that that's just not really possible and not only is it not possible it's not authentic I work mm. in a really, really relational way in a very, a very connected and authentic way with my clients. And this is a piece of me that's always been in the room, to be sure. It's a part of me, but it's not a, a piece that's gotten so much airtime is the wrong word, but it's not a piece that I've really been able to be, I guess, super accepting of or or there hasn't been as much flow. Let's, let's go back to flow. There hasn't been as much flow between who I am in the therapy room and then letting this part in as well. It's there whether I want to let it in or not. And, and since, since this piece was published, I'm noticing ripples of it even in the kinds of clients who come to me and even in you know, the, the ripples in that way or small shared experiences. And it's just been really powerful. You know, I'm curious, um, as a follow-up, I'm curious, what has the feedback that you've gotten on this piece been like, both to receive and to hear? It's, I've gotten a lot of feedback on it. Um, and it's all been, it's all been really positive. It's all been really affirming. Um, a lot of people just, and a lot of professional colleagues as well, and as well as like personal friends and family members, but from both from both kind of ends of the spectrum, a lot of people thanking me for for sharing it, um, saying that you know parts of it really resonated with them or or things like that, and it's it's just all been really affirming. I don't, you know, especially given the way this piece started, right? As as really just a journal entry, essentially it was validation enough in some ways just to let it out, but it's been, it's been so affirming to have it be held and to have it be heard and, and read by so many people. You know, I feel like so much of what Rebecca's questions are, she may not have used the phrase, but it's a phrase we use often, which is being seen Mm -hmm. and, you know, wondering what it's like to be seen. And I feel like when you wrote this piece, you know, I think we're, as we're coming to the end of our conversation today, it seems to me that so much of what the, the prompt you sort of had given yourself, maybe knowingly or not, was what is it like to see and be seen in this world now that the unexpected has happened? Mm. And I feel like that comes through this piece in a very sort of subterranean way because it's obviously a question you've been asking yourself your whole life. Right. And maybe perhaps by being in our group and knowing we, we had this platform for you, it gave you that opportunity to say, oh, I'm going to write into this in a more overt way because it means something to you right now based on your own past stories. And it means something to us collectively right now because we're all seeing the world through slightly different eyes. And that makes us realize that people may be looking at us differently than they did a week, a month, a year ago. Absolutely. I mean, these were themes and stories that I haven't touched in, oh gosh, probably at least 12, 15 years, something like that. These were themes that I, I definitely wrote a lot as a lot as a teenager, a lot in college, and then not so much since then on these themes. I've certainly written other things, more professional things generally, but there was, I remember before I sat down and wrote the first draft, it, again, it was that in, that embodiment piece that I said to someone, I just feel so much, I, I might have said the word agita, <laughs> but, um, but it really was like this, this like held stuck feeling in my chest, um, which is often where when I, tu- when I tune into that, when I notice stuckness there, it's something that needs to be either written into or played into or sung into 
um, you know, drawn into. It's that's where I hold a lot of my stuff, for lack of a better word. And so it was I didn't really have a clear prompt in mind, like I'm going to write about how this has affected me um, or what this means, you know, a week and a half later, because it wasn't even the next day. It wasn't it took me that long to process. And of course, I'm still processing as a lot of us are. But it, it again, now that I'm thinking about it, it was the it was the embodiment that really started it. Yeah, I love that idea of of writing into singing into a part of the body. I know that's a lot of the work that I, I do myself and have and invite people to do. And I know it's at, at the, the work that you do yeah. as a therapist as well. Absolutely. I wonder if that's a great place to leave our listeners with that invitation to pay attention mm. and to invite themselves to notice those moments and use them as prompts. To tune in, mm-hmm. to find what you need to write into, sing into, create into. Mm. Beautiful. What a beautiful invitation, yeah. Mm. Maya, is there anything that, as we close out for today, is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? How can we find you? So I can be found online at um, mayabenatar.com. And Maya, like Maya Angelou, and Benatar, like Pat Benatar, but with one more, <laughs> with one more T. <laughs> and we'll we'll include that in our show notes. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just always like to to say it out. I think it's endearing in some way. Oh, I love uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> but and I'm I also have a um a free guided relaxation audio track that people can get if they're interested, and that's available at www.mayabenatar.com slash guided dash relaxation. Awesome. We'll make sure to include that link in our show notes as well. And of course, we'll include the link to this blog post so that people can read it and savor it and share it around. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maya. It's been a pleasure to chat with you again today. Such a pleasure. Thank you both. If you're a therapist, we'd love to invite you to join the Practice of Being Seen community. This is where you have a chance to connect the dots between what goes on in society and what goes on in your office. This is a chance to see yourself and see the world around you. For more information and to apply, please visit us at practiceofbeingseen.com community dash for dash therapists. We'll include the link in the show notes. For more great content, check out practiceofbeingseen.com and spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. Music written and performed by Christopher Ferris and produced at Kidneystone Studio.